podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. So hello there and welcome to a brand new episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. My name is Adam Burns. I'm one of your hosts for this episode and joining me once again, my co-host Courtney Pine. Courtney, how are you doing this evening? You okay? Hello, everyone. Yeah, um, I'm, in, I'm in a brilliant mood. Um, it's been a, a great weekend for the channel. Um, and I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank everybody that has supported this channel so far, whether it be originally friends and family and then later on, those of you that have seem to have liked what we put out there and have um, given us a lot of positive feedback and one or two of you have gone um, even further and um, plugged our content on your own socials so thank you so much I hope you're enjoying what we're doing and we've got so much planned um, over the off season and uh, we look forward to delivering stuff that we hope that you'll like. Yeah, absolutely. My thoughts, exactly. And uh, just to point out, of course, we mentioned in the last episode how great it would be for those of you that hadn't already seen episode 40 to check that out and try and help us to get to 1000 views and also 100 subscribers. Well, pleased to say we've absolutely smashed both of those targets. So to recap, we've had our first video reach 1000 views on YouTube. And we've also had uh, we've also passed the 100 subscriber mark. So we can now officially be recognized as a channel that is moving forward in the right direction. And I suppose all that's left to say on that is thank you so much to everyone that has either tuned into an episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast or subsequently subscribed to the channel. Even if you've listened to an episode on the podcast on any of the major podcasting platforms and follow us from there, thank you so much, all the same as everyone else. Now, of course, I did mention um, in that episode that if we were able to hit those targets that I would reward you guys with an opportunity and a little bit of a giveaway which we will discuss in a episode in the very very near future so do keep an eye or an ear out for uh, that announcement and what that's going to be so uh, thank you so much for your support on that one but um, getting into the main topic of this episode in particular before the uh, Bahrain Grand Prix this weekend we thought that well we realized actually I should say that we had discussed a lot about Lewis Hamilton's success of course Lewis Hamilton now a seven-time world champion the most successful driver of all time in the sport in terms of statistics and now we talked about whether or not he deserves a knighthood there's been some stories going around the media in the aftermath of that episode, probably not related, suggested that that will be the case and that Lewis will be acknowledged for his services to motorsport and also his political uh, activism as well. So, you know, if, if that does happen, that will be fantastic news for Lewis and his family. And obviously we'll be the first to congratulate him if and when that is announced. But until then, we decided to go somewhere a little bit different. And Courtney and I was thinking about what F1 will look like or what F1 fans have to look forward to as far as a British sport uh, as far as British sport is concerned what it will look like for British F1 I've kind of that's a terrible way of asking that question Courtney um let me start that again yeah. uh, <laughs> this is the problem when you record these podcast right, lives we don't really do much editing on these ones now for those of you that are listening because we have the video podcast um we kind of just roll it live as and when we as and when you see it 
So obviously we don't have any. We do well, mate. We do well. I try. Uh, my presenting skills do need a bit of work, <laughs> but I feel like it's getting better. I mean, we've only been doing this for nine months and the channel's growing the way it is. I feel like now that more people are engaging with our content and more people are in the comments, they're liking, they're reacting to us, you know, that's absolutely brilliant for us, you know, to see on yeah, every Yeah, we do episode. love it. Yeah, and, and, you know, we love you guys putting in your comments and opinions. We literally crave for you guys to weigh in and also not necessarily agree with us if you disagree with us you know feel free to challenge us on this we absolutely respect that i had one really good comment um, i won't go into too much details that you know required me to have to sit back and think about a good response to that to try and engage with this person in the right way and have a nice little debate on that you know that's the sort of thing that i love to do to engage with supporters and followers and whether you agree or not you know that's your opinion that's everyone's entitled to it as long as it's respectful and uh, you know worth having well not worth having is the wrong way of putting it but um you know contributes to the actual discussion itself all the more all the merrier um so yeah back to what i was going to say before i've gone off again on a tangent as i so often do on this second podcast. time lucky second time lucky probably have to go three or four goes before i absolutely nail it but here goes <laughs> nothing um so yeah a post lewis hamilton formula one how will that landscape look like from a british perspective and we've decided to look at the current drivers in formula one british drivers in formula one i should say in f1 and f2 to try and give a bit of a background and also debate and discuss what contribution that we feel that they will be making to formula one in the near future if at all and what will we have to look forward to as british fans of the sport and it's okay if you're not british it's absolutely fine but obviously it's a good opportunity to see some of the young british stars coming up as lewis hamilton did himself and many others before him before they make their way into formula one so courtney i know you're excited about doing this episode so let's get stuck into it without any further ado and let's begin with the two formula one drivers in the current grid uh in lando norris and george russell two of the young stars that have shone in separate ways in their junior careers and in Formula One. So let's begin with the most successful of the two at this point in time, and that's Lando Norris. So Lando Norris, a very, very young driver, I believe the youngest on our list. I'd have to fact check that. But, um, you know, so 21 years of age, he's already achieved quite a lot in the sport with the McLaren team, especially this season, getting that podium in the Austrian Grand Prix in the opening race of the season. And... I think it's fair to say, Courtney, that Lando had a very successful junior career. Yeah, no, he did. Um, you know, he he done well in all sorts of uh, junior categories. Um, and then in the F2 series, I, I found the F2 series to be quite interesting because he started off well when he was in a championship battle with George Russell. And he seemed to turn off a little bit towards the end. But when he went into... Formula One, he, he formed a great partnership with Carlos Sainz. Um, and I do feel that Lando, his partnership with Carlos is um, very much one of the factors um, into what we should probably say is a, a mini resurgence to McLaren. No, I, I always see McLaren as a team that should be competing at the very front. But considering they went from almost a back of the grid to where they are now, I definitely feel that Lando has been a big, a big factor in that. Um, and I also feel that with Lando, I've, I feel that he represents a younger generation coming through, you know, very social media orientated. And 
I'll say the majority, particularly younger fans, love what he's done because he's kind of, I, I feel that he's kind of bridging the gap between Formula One and, shall we say, the general audience. You know, there's always been this perception, you know, Formula One's boring and they associate it with, you know, older people. But I feel that Lando is definitely bridging that gap and he's probably generating more interest in Formula One, particularly from younger fans. And I think he's definitely been a very positive um He's definitely been a, a positive influence on the sport since he's joined. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you raise a really good point about the interaction on social media that Lando Norris has really championed, I suppose, not just from a British fan's perspective in Formula One, but in Formula One in general. I mean, for a long, long time before social media was a thing, there was always the F1 world and then there was everyone else in the other world. And as an observer, you'd kind of feel that that Formula One world, unless you were in that inner circle, it was kind of exclusive to them. And it was almost out of touch to fans. Like fans didn't really know what was really going on with their favorite drivers up until they turned the steering wheel at the circuits on the weekends. And, you know, Lando Norris in particular, his social media engagement, which, you know, it's fair to say in a lot of parts has been quite hilarious. And that has also translated into, you know, his personality as a driver in the paddock. I mean, you hear so many great stories about Lando just, you know, being one of those positive, uplifting people with a very bubbly attitude at the best of times. Um, I mean, I'll give you a great example in, I think it was Mugello on uh, Friday practice. And uh, I think you know the example I was, I was getting into where yeah. he starts you, singing that song. Are you are you are you going are you going to sing it? Because I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I might do. I might do. Um, yeah, sorry. It's why not? Friday you know? there. <laughs> then, uh, then, you know, it goes Friday then. Yeah. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to do it justice. So you know, check it out if you haven't already seen this. Absolutely hilarious. Like as a meme on its own. That's so funny. You know, when he was doing the radio check and started singing that, that was absolutely brilliant. But these are the sorts of hallmarks of Lando's character. You know, he's the sort of driver that, of course, you expect Lando to be professional, get his head stuck in, um, you know, get his head down, I should say, and just, you know, drive the car to the peak of its capabilities as best as he can. And he does that a lot of the time, as all good drivers do. But he's able to merge that with this you know, element of fun and enjoyment and kind of engagement with the younger fans, almost to a point where he's just, he's having the time of his life and he's sharing that with the world in so many different ways. And that's one of my favourite... And that's what it should be. Yeah, that's one of my favourite qualities in Lando. And and you're right, that's that's how it should be with a lot of drivers. But it's a very much uh, a results-based business Formula One. So there is an expectation of professionalism and focus to a point where... A lot of the drivers in the paddock that, by contrast, you don't hear much of at all. People like, uh, let's say, Kimi Raikkonen or Valtteri Bottas or Sebastian Vettel. Seb. I mean, Seb, yeah, great example. Sebastian Vettel, one of the few drivers, and I think probably the only driver that isn't active on social media. Um, but when it comes to the racing, you don't really hear anything. Of course, you hear more from him now, but you don't really hear that same sort of vibe that, you know, he's having a, you know, too often like Lando does and you know it's like the old-fashioned Formula One driver where you just don't really engage much with them you don't really know what's going on in their head or is it constant concentration in these guys when they're driving or do they have moments where they can just sort of relax enjoy themselves and 
you know, kind of act like the sort of person like you or me, if we're driving around a circuit in a Formula One car, having the time of our life, it's, it's, it's those elements. That's in that issue, Exactly. Yeah. It's those elements in Lando's personality and his character that I enjoy as much as I enjoy his ability behind the wheel, which for his age is incredible. I mean, these drivers are getting younger and younger and younger. And Lando was extremely young when he made his Formula One debut. He was only 18 years of age, I believe. So, or 18, 19 years of age. So, you know, very much fast-tracked into Formula One. And I suppose, you know, we've said a lot of positive things about Lando. You know, if on a more serious level, would it be fair to say that perhaps he's maybe he's too fun or he acts his age a bit too often? I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, probably doing a bit of a disservice. No, I I do know what you mean. And it's... It's not easy to get this balance right. I, I feel that he's improved on it this season, but I, I, it's it's such a tough one because, yeah, you know, he wants to be enjoying it and it and it's great for everyone to see. But yeah, at the same time, you, you know, he is there to you know get the very best out of himself and you know potentially challenge for a world championship because that's that's the whole point of them being there. You know, giving them the potential to be a world champion. And that's always been a slight concern of of mine is that, you know, will he be distracted by, you know, by the social media? Like, for example, I, I saw a little bit of a change in him. I'm, I'm hoping it was, I'm hoping it's only a temporary thing. But I noticed a, temp, a temporary change in him after he was exposed to his first, shall we say, controversy. Because I, I, I think there was too much weight on it. And I'll, I'll refer to it now. Um, he got a lot of grief over um, over comments he made over Lewis equally in uh, Michael Schumacher's race wins. And it was a tongue-in-cheek comment, you know, and this is coming from a Lewis Hamilton fan. I thought it was a tongue-in-cheek comment and he got so much abuse for it. And I feel that's the first time because where he's so exposed to social media, he's not only exposed to the positive stuff, but also the negative stuff. And I, I, I just think, because I think he admitted it, I think he admitted that he really did get to him. And there was a, there was a change in demeanour over that weekend and I hope he really recovers from it because I think he has so much potential with his ability and at the same time, I think he can continue bridging the gap between, you know, Formula One and the general audience because, to be honest, Adam, that's one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast. We want to kind of break the negative stigmas attached to Formula One and I hope so far we're doing a good job of that. But I feel Lando's doing a, a fantastic job of it and I, and I just hope that he continues to get that balance right between his racecraft and his social media stuff. He's got other projects going on with Quadrant and stuff like that, which might be a good thing for him. But, you know, I think I think in the next season or so, particularly with Danny Ricciardo coming along and maybe McLaren going in a positive direction, having a Mercedes engine next season, I think the next couple of seasons could be a real opportunity for him to make a mark in the sport. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, I, I think for, for clarity, people wondering what comments we're referring to, as you mentioned, it's, it was, you know, on Lewis Hamilton's success, once he broke Schumacher's record in Portimao, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, Lando mentioned that, you know, and Lando had a difficult race himself, obviously had that incident with Lance Stroll that kind of ruined his race later on. And he wasn't best pleased. And the worst thing in the world, I can imagine, for sports stars in any uh, particular sport that you can imagine athletes in general they probably hate the fact that after a difficult day 
the press literally shoving their microphones in your face, asking you about what happened the moment you step out of your car or walk off a football pitch or rugby pitch or wherever it is that you, you know, you apply your trade <clears throat> as far as athletes are concerned. And I can understand why Lando made those comments, you know, tongue in cheek comments as he did saying that, you know, Lewis's success is fantastic, but he's had the best car for a long time. So there is an expectation. Now, of course, there's a lot of truth. I think we should clarify, you know, people talking about the best car and with Lewis in particular, there is an element of truth to what Lando said uh, when he was talking about that. But of course, a lot of people reacted negatively to what Lando said because it was trying to, tar it, it came across as if he was trying to tarnish or make light of what Lewis had actually achieved. Like this was a huge moment, not just in Formula One, but in sport in general. You know, the biggest or most successful driver in the history of the sport has finally been toppled in terms of his achievements by someone else. And usually that's something we'd want to celebrate. And Lando saying what he said, it didn't put a dampener on it, but I can understand why a lot of people felt frustrated in it. And to clarify the old argument versus, you know, with Lewis having the best car, you know, we said this before, and we said this so many times when we talk about this issue, all of the best drivers in the history of Formula One, your Fangio's, your Schumacher's, your Prost's, your Senna's, uh, and Hamilton's in this case as well, Alonso as well. They've all had the best car for certain prolonged periods of time. And that has contributed a long way towards them achieving that level of success. And the reason why they've had those cars is because they are the best drivers. You don't just end up in a top level car by chance and, you know, you you start racking up wins because that says one or two things either you're really good in the equipment that you have or everyone else is terrible and in lewis's case yes he's had the best equipment for a lot of this turbo hybrid era but he's doing the best job he can with the equipment he has and he's not just winning races he's dominating races as well and the same can be said for all of those previous legends that i've already mentioned you know sebastian vettel did the same thing in his red bull days so there is a way to sort of analyze that. I don't think Lando meant it in the way that he said it. And you're right. It was kind of a bit of a turning point where perhaps Lando was no longer being perceived as the happy go lucky bubbly kind of character that we know and love him for. And we finally saw an ounce of frustration in him that, I mean, bear in mind, this isn't the first time Lando has been robbed of big points. I mean, look at the Spa Grand Prix in 2019 when he was on for a fifth place finish or, um, at Le Castellet in France, where he had to try and fend off Daniel Ricciardo and a few others whilst having power issues himself. Big points were being taken away from him. So, you know, you started to see elements of a driver that was really suffering that frustration. And that's a human reaction. But obviously, you know, the day before that, Max, or two days before that, Max Verstappen had made some heinous comments of his own. And yet people weren't attacking him as much as they were attacking this. It's like, not to encourage people to get on Max's case on this, you know, you've got to take it in the right context, but I feel like sometimes people need to look beyond the actual statement that they read in a frustrated, heated moment when someone's clearly not thinking. And the last thing they want to do is talk about someone else or actually talk about a race where they didn't have the best of days. You know, it, I mean, what do you think on that as a whole, Courtney? Do you feel that this will really affect Lando going forward. I, I don't think it does. I think he's banished it personally, but. Yeah, no, I, I hope that's the case. Um, but it's just, it's just one of those things that I think sometimes we forget that 
the moment these drivers get interviewed, they've not long stepped out of the car and their adrenaline is still rushing. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to make excuses because like, sometimes, you know, well, you see sometimes with the team radios, that's another debate. You know, some things are said that they probably wouldn't say any, like in their casual state of mind. Mm. But, but when, they're, when, they're, when they're competing, you know, to be the best and you've got, you know, you've got all this going on, you know, you've got to think about, they've got all, all the information they've got to take from the engineers. You know, there's a lot going through and I just don't think they sometimes have the time to think about every single word they say to the media. I know it's a part of the job, but I just, I just feel that, yeah, I just feel that the reaction was, you know, he had, he had to be accounted for what he said. I just feel the reaction overall was quite harsh. You know, he's, he's, he's only 20, 21. Mm. You know, so these, these guys, these lads coming through, they're so young. And I think sometimes you got, you got to take a look at yourself and sometimes think, oh, come on, some of the things we used to say at that age, you know? Oh, absolutely. It, it, yeah, it happens. There's still, there's still, there's, you know, he's, he's still young. Same, same with Max, you know, but unfortunately they are in an adult environment and, you know, but maybe that's a part of the debate where it's, it's all balancing acts. But, you know, going back to the original point about me, you know, worrying about his racecraft and how committed he is, in a way, his reaction at the end of that race is encouraging because it shows that he has that will to win. So mm. maybe he can use those emotions, look back and actually use them to help him going into next season. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that because, I mean, we saw Charles Leclerc do something similar at the end of the Turkish Grand Prix that, you know, he's constantly angry at himself, not looking at the positives too much, you know, and Seb got a podium and yeah, he was happy for Seb, but, you know, he was more frustrated at himself. So you can hardly blame him for wanting to put all that aside to join in the festivities with celebrating Seb's success, which he probably did anyway, um, whilst lamenting his own mistakes. And that's the sort of winning mentality. I mean, we see so many young drivers with potential do the same thing. So there's no reason to attack Lando. And I think one important point I should mention in all this, because we've praised Lewis so much, and rightly so. You know, the, the guy deserves all the accolades in the world for what he's achieved in the sport. And I've heard a lot, I've heard a lot of people do similar things, almost to the point where a lot majority of people have this culminated opinion of Lewis Hamilton that's one that's very positive and that he's a legend of the sport and he's deserved and earned every success that he's been bestowed with. And that's great. But it is okay to have uh, opinions of Lewis Hamilton that are less favourable, providing that you've got relevant evidence to back that up. Like, for example, um, you're a Ferrari fan or you're a McLaren fan and you feel that Lewis left you in your darkest days because obviously Lewis left in 20 at the end of 2012 the car was going nowhere as a project as we saw in the following seasons it was not very good and he went to join a project in Mercedes to obviously which um, resulted in him becoming the most successful Formula One driver of all time it's okay if you're not a Lewis Hamilton fan and I think the reason why I'm saying this is because the reaction as you mentioned to Lando's comments were very much critical on the basis that it was a lot of angry uh, Lewis Hamilton fans slating Lando Norris just because he was belittling his success. Now, of course, people entitled to their opinions, and if you're not happy with what Lando said, then that's absolutely fine. All I say is that, you know, I, I don't want social media to become a culture, at least from my perspective, where we can't, we can praise people but we can't criticize them in equal measure when they make mistakes or don't do well in the same way that we can't, we can criticize people when they don't do well, but we can't praise them on the occasions when they're successful. You've got to find that right balance and be consistent with that. And in Lando's case, I think 
perhaps on that occasion, whether it was justified or not, that he didn't receive that. But thankfully, it hasn't really affected him too much. He's just been able to carry on almost as if nothing happened, apologised immediately and just moved on. And sometimes that's all you really need to do. But before we go on to George Russell, let's ask the question about Lando, because Lando's qualifying performances have been very good in Formula One. He, last season, he outperformed his teammate Carlos Sainz in qualifying, and he's doing pretty well in qualifying this year. So we know about his pace. He's had a brilliant junior career, um, you know, GP3 champion, runner-up in F2 to George Russell. You know, they had that long battle between them two in 2018 it was the highlight of that season um for a long way especially for british motorsport to see these two next gen stars really shine in that series both in their rookie seasons and doing so well and lando to his credit has got a podium in formula one in a mclaren as you mentioned that are looking at more exciting pastures in the coming years with the new mercedes engine and of course the new engine regulations the question i suppose on everyone's minds regarding lando norris is if McLaren get to a point where they can score podiums on a regular basis, race wins and challenge for championships in the near future, will Lando be up to the task or is Lando good enough to take advantage of that? Bearing in mind, he's got a team like Daniel Ricciardo in his alongside him as well. But we know that his talents, we don't have any reservations about him, but is Lando ready for uh, being in a car and handling the pressure of being expected to deliver race results of the higher echelons of the grid? I think right now, I think if it's say, for example, McLaren were to somehow, you know, perform a masterstroke and be uh, competing with Mercedes, um, I personally don't think he'd be ready to handle that pressure. Because I, I think actually with, with his popularity comes even more pressure, you know, and, and being exposed to social media again, that would build up the pressure. But, you know, he's he's already shown signs that he can handle high-pressure situations. So I wouldn't want to completely, you know, rule him out. But I think if it's to happen, like, next season, particularly with Danny Ricciardo coming along, I, I think the next two or three seasons, I think he just really needs to make his mark. You know, don't make any high-profile high errors. You know, don't get yourself in too wrapped up in many more controversies because they can consume drivers I think like, I think we saw it in Nico Rosberg I think Nico Rosberg was starting to feel the pressure of you know competing with somebody as popular as Lewis particularly on social media and stuff he must he must have seen it hmm. and it does it, it can get the better so I just think think Lando really going forward just just carry on improving season after season and then if he's lucky enough he might get an opportunity in the next three four maybe five years to compete for a world championship yeah I, I mean, I agree with a lot of that. I, I think Lando has shown um, good pace, as I said, in qualifying. We know he's quick and we know he's very good at extracting the most out of a car on a Saturday. Sundays, um, this season in particular, his racecraft has improved. I mean, it was pretty decent last season. You know, he was very unfortunate not to score points um, in certain races when he looked like he was going to deliver and the mechanical reliability issues prevented that. This season in particular... He has done pretty well. He's one point behind his teammate, Carlos Sainz. Now, bear in mind, we're talking about Carlos, who's been in the sport um, for about, uh, I think it's his fifth season in Formula One. Yeah, I think um, you're right, yeah. And, you know, Carlos is going to Ferrari. Obviously, Ferrari have recognised his talent. And we sort of rate Carlos Sainz not on the level of the Leclerc's or the Verstappen's, but the level beneath that with the likes of the Daniel Ricciardo's, the Valtteri Bottas's, 
you know, that those kind of drivers that we know can deliver big results and big performances when needed to. I mean, in Monza, he got that second place, very nearly won that race um, when yeah, he battled have, Pierre yeah. Gasly. Very could have easily won. That would have been a great uh, signal to the Ferrari fans that their future driver winning at Monza, but obviously that didn't happen. You know, so to Lando to be competing neck and neck with Carlos Sainz and really going toe to toe with someone more experienced, a bit older, um, and probably at this point showing more of his talent. But, um, you know, the potential is there for Lando. So we'll have to wait and see. But I personally think he's got what it takes to, you know, when the, if the McLaren are in a position to get podiums, race wins and challenge championships to Lando to really be a big challenger. Will he win a world championship? I don't know. There's a, And the reason why I say that is not to suggest that I don't think he can. I just think there's going to be so much competition. I mean, this new generation really does excite me in Formula 1. We're talking for Stappen, yeah. Leclerc, Norris, Russell, Sainz, five off the top of the you know, top of my head that I think are really going to be challenges for world championships in the next five years or so, if not sooner. The budget cap that's going to be implemented in 2022 to try and even up the playing field and the new regulations, we're going to see arguably the most competitive series or uh, competitive period in Formula 1 or probably almost any era, in my opinion, as long as that they can keep the aerodynamic regulations in check, I think we're in store for a very exciting decade in this sport. And with that, are five in particular very talented drivers. Daniel Ricciardo as well, let's not forget him, slightly older, but definitely got it in him. In the right car could really have a very interesting fight. So it's going to be extremely difficult for Lando. And as I said, those characters that he's going to be up against, it will take some doing to beat them. I think he can, but it will be very, very difficult for him to do that. Oh, great. So moving on, um, and it was quite a long discussion about Lando Norris, actually, but he's probably the one I think <laughs> he's probably the one I think is worth talking about the most at this moment because there's a lot of unknown variables with Lando Norris. Obviously, we discussed the sort of people's champion of social media character that we know and love even before he was in Formula One and obviously bringing that to it. But then he's got that immense talent to boot. So, you know, there's a lot of excitement there with Lando. Moving on to another driver. And I think it's fair to say the one with the highest ceiling of potential of any of the British drivers coming up post Hamilton, and that's George Russell. Now, George Russell, uh, again, very young driver, only 22 at this point in time, extremely successful career, arguably one of the most successful junior careers I think any driver in the history of the sport can boast. You know, uh, you know, many successes in karting, Formula Renault, Formula Four, Formula uh, GP, sorry, not GP3, Formula Three champion in 2017, uh, Formula Two champion in 2018 in his debut season. Incredibly impressive. Obviously, as we mentioned, that battle with Lando Norris that he had, where he was ultimately successful. You know, George Russell having one of the most successful seasons in F2 history back in 2018, rivaling the likes of Charles Leclerc that came the year before he did. You know, that's how good George was in that series. Of course, signing for Williams in 2019 using uh, a PowerPoint presentation to eventually convince Claire Williams and Sir Frank to sign him up for the team. Proved successful. I've never known a Formula One driver to ever use PowerPoint to um, argue their case rather than demonstrating what they can do on the track. And George did that in abundance, but it certainly was enough to convince them. And since then, Courtney, unlike Lando, George's F1 career has not exactly been stellar, I think it's fair to say. Now, 
that is in no way his part or part because of what he's done in the car. Um, we or anyone in F1 will know that Williams in particular, despite his incredible history and success, particularly in the 90s, has really struggled over the last two decades to really replicate that level of performance. And it's been on a downward spiral to the point where they're now trying to recoup and recover all of that. And having a driver like George has been fantastic, but it's been very difficult to gauge his talent and potential in a Formula One car to the same degree that we have been able to assess Lando Norris. I mean, first things first, Courtney, with George, what do you rate of his time in Formula One so far? Um, I the, the main sort of reference we have is, um, is his teammate, you know, because where Williams have been so far behind, particularly last season, you can only look at how he's competing with his teammate. And particularly in qualifying, he's been he's been absolutely fantastic. He's been absolutely knocking it out of the park. But when it comes to the Sunday, I think it can probably get frustrating and boring for him because they're so far behind and he's just kind of He's kind of waiting for that first opportunity to get that first point. He needs a race exceptional enough to get there. And I'm starting to see a growing frustration in George. He's starting to make a couple of mistakes that you wouldn't have seen him make last season. And, you know, earlier on we discussed Lando Norris's sort of first moment in the negative spotlight, shall we say. And George very much was at the end of that when he made a, a high-profile mistake Um just be on a safety car at Imola. And I think he got a lot of stick for that. And it's a shame for George because unlike Lando, Lando's had some really high points to celebrate. So you can kind of sit back and go, yeah, you know what, that happened. But, you know, I've got my podium. I've, I've, won, some, I've, got, I've won some points that, you know, that I went and truly earned. And, but unfortunately, George hasn't had that yet. And I, I feel that, I feel that George has so much potential. Um, those that listen regularly were probably sick of him hearing me say that he should be in that Mercedes seat alongside Lewis Hammond. But I still believe that if he has a strong season next season and Valtteri like, very much struggles, I can't see why George can't go alongside because naturally, I think George could probably do well with a team in the Mercedes, shall we say, in a Mercedes family, like a McLaren or an Aston Martin. But unfortunately, that's not going to be available for him. So the only seat that could potentially be available is the Mercedes. So as much as it would be a big step up for him, if you have a look at all the other categories that he's gone into, he hasn't really struggled. So I'm very, I'm a very big advocate for um, George Russell, but unfortunately it's been really frustrating for him. He hasn't really been given the opportunity to show what he's truly capable of. Yeah, you're right. And the barometer that we normally measure with George, or if we want to talk about his potential and a huge talent, and I really do feel that he potentially of this generation could potentially be the biggest talent outside Verstappen and Leclerc. That's how highly I rate George in particular. But as you said already, the only barometer that we can measure him on is from his junior career, where he was incredibly successful, won in F3 in his rookie season and also in F2, you know, completely dominated in the junior categories. And you see in George now, and you mentioned the mistake he made behind the safety car uh, at Imola, where he was in a points position, which could have proved to have been worth ninth rather than tenth. Unfortunately, we'll never know because of what happened when he made that mistake, lost it in the wall. It can happen to anybody under the circumstances. Unfortunately, in this case, it happened to George. You know, he had that race in Mugello, which I still think he was brilliant at. Very unlucky not to get a point in that race. He was unlucky in Portimao. The strategy just didn't really pay dividends to him because he drove well. 
And of course, Germany last year in that crazy race where his teammate Robert Kibitza ended up with a point. But the only reason that he did that is because Williams messed up the strategy for George, which put him behind Robert when it should have been the other way around. You know, George's performances have been measured on his qualifying. I think that's been a standout thing. He's made, uh, I think, six appearances. Actually, no, not six. I think eight appearances, I believe, in Q2 this season. That's in impressive. In the slowest car, which is incredible. And, you know, he's had the yeah. nickname Mr. Saturday. He's also boasting, um, well, the only driver on the current F1 grid or any F1 era that I can imagine. And uh, if any of you F1 historians out there find another driver, please feel free to let me know in the comments uh, that can boast the record of never having been beaten by a teammate in qualifying. 35-0, and 0, which is incredibly impressive because he's not had bad Crazy. drivers as teammates. I mean, Robert Kibitza, even... You know, not the Robert Kibitzer of old post his injuries, but still pretty quick and still able to handle a Formula One car pretty well. He's a test driver for Alfa Romeo, so he certainly knows what he's doing. Um, and Nicholas Vitifi, who was runner-up in F2 last season, uh, or sorry, uh, F2 champion, I should say, last season. So very, very impressive. Not runner-up, I don't know what I was thinking there. But um, actually, no, he was runner-up. I forget Nick DeVries. You know why I forget Nick DeVries? Because he's gone <laughs> to Formula E. Oh, Yes. Adam, 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 it's terrible. <laughs> See, this is what happens, guys, when, on the old podcast uh, before we did the videos. Whenever I'd make a mistake or Courtney make a mistake, we'd just simply edit it out and you'd be none the wiser. Now, completely exposed. So fraud comments incoming, I'm sure, but um, or get a new presenter on. I don't know. But uh, life goes on, I suppose. We'll make mistakes. Anyway, it does, Adam. It does. Nick DeVries, 2019 F2 champion. Nicholas Latifi, runner-up. Happy? Right, great. Um <laughs> Uh, I love doing this. It's so funny. But um, anyway, back to so, George. Back to George. Back to George. Yeah, thank you, Courtney, for putting. You, I think you should do that more often. When I go off tangent, and I realise I'm doing it again, just like add back to George. Um, that'll be a new new phrase if you like. Um, I'll remember that new code. Back to George. Yeah, whenever I go off tangent, <laughs> I have to find one for you. Anyway, back to George. Um, so, you know, incredible career in F2. Uh, moving as a Formula One. Of course, we judged him on his qualifying performance, as we already mentioned, as incredible as that's been. But it's the race craft of George Russell, which we've always felt that, you know, some mistakes have come into his driving, not big, big, big mistakes, but little ones that can really be the difference between trying to get into the points and unfortunately not being able to get into the points. And this season in particular, he's having a lot more fun because he's racing against other drivers rather than just his teammate. And you're right to mention, Courtney, the issue he has in getting into the Mercedes seat alongside Lewis Hamilton, the Valtteri Bottas issue. Now, Valtteri Bottas is not a bad driver. A lot of people make jokes about Bottas saying, you know, he's always going to be Hamilton's number two or he's a perfect wingman or everything else. But when it's all said and done, Valtteri Bottas is a very, very good Formula One driver. And without Lewis Hamilton would be winning this world championship. There's no arguments. He is, you know, second in the championship. Without Lewis, he'd be leading the championship and dominating the championship, I think it's fair to say. And, yeah, you know, this is the problem for George Russell because right now the Mercedes have absolutely no reason to get rid of Bottas when he's second in the championship and only to his teammate. You know, that, that literally is the minimum requirement for Valtteri Bottas, I suppose, if you're a number two driver to beat everybody else. And, you know, he's very good to work with. It's a very harmonious atmosphere. He works very well with Lewis Hamilton, despite the rivalries and the challenges and the Bottas 2.0 and everything else. 
it works well for Mercedes. So Mercedes don't really have a reason to say to Valtteri Bottas, you're not delivering on what we expected from you. It's not going well. We're not going to keep you on. And, and that's the problem George has. And, and another thing to add to that is there's no halfway house midfield seat that George can jump into. I mean, the Red Bull have Alpha Tauri, Ferrari have Alfa Romeo and most likely Haas to some degree as well. There's no middle ground for George Russell. He can't simply just jump into the Aston Martin. And even though the partnership between Aston Martin and Mercedes is increasing, especially with Toto Wolff's um, increased involvement, I suppose, in the company as well, there seems to be a growing sense that Aston Martin, if it wasn't already, or Racing Point in this case, is becoming a Mercedes B team. But the problem you have there is the two drivers that we expect to be in that team next season, not that the latter has been confirmed, is Sebastian Vettel for the next couple of years and Lance Stroll. Two drivers who probably have the two safest seats in Formula One at this point in time. Oh, yeah, so definitely. W- there's no route forward to George other than completely bypassing that Aston Martin step into a Mercedes. But as I said before, because of the Bottas situation, it doesn't seem likely that George Russell is going to jump into that at least until 2022, when we're going to finally see what he can do. And that's a really difficult thing for George Russell to deal with mentally, as well as being able to string up the performances for Williams on a regular basis. I mean, how do you feel about that situation, Courtney, with Aston Martin? Do you feel that, are they becoming a B team for Mercedes? And if they are, do you feel like it's a flawed prospect on the basis of trying to promote young drivers to the Mercedes team from their academy? Because they already lost Esteban Ocon. And they certainly won't want to lose George Russell, but there isn't a lot for George other than the fact that that car is incredible keeping him there in that academy, other than, say, if an opportunity opens up at Red Bull or Ferrari. I think Mercedes need to be a little bit careful. I think they need to look at what happened with the Red Bull programme. They let go of so many talented drivers, and now they're in a situation where they kind of, you know, the, the pool has gone dry shall we say, the talent pool has gone dry and they're struggling to bring people through from the junior categories. And I think Mercedes need to look at that because I don't I don't think they can afford to lose somebody as talented as George. And I think that's going to be a bit of a, a bit of conundrum for Mercedes going into next season or so because even, as you said, Bottas is doing great. You know, he can't compete with Lewis, but he's still delivering for the team. But a time is going to come where Mercedes has seriously got to think, OK, particularly after Lewis retires, is Bottas going to be the man that we can really look at? Even though Lewis most likely be replaced by somebody like Verstappen. But they must be looking at George Russell as well because he's certainly got the talent. Um, I'm going to go off the topic just slightly, Adam. I'm going to go on to the Insta poll that I'll put out and uh, round up this uh, Lando Norris-George uh, Russell thing. Yeah, sure. And, um, yeah, I'll put, I'll put the poll out there and I, and I just simply asked. I said... Um, if they were both competing for a world championship, who would win? And quite interestingly, um, 79% went for George Russell and 21% went for Lando Norris. So I think to summarise, there's definitely a feeling that George Russell definitely has a lot to offer because Lando Norris is certainly no slouch. So I, I just think there's going to be a grand sentiment in the coming years of seeing more from George Russell because I think he has a lot to offer. I certainly hope so. And, you know, it wasn't too long ago that we were sort of concerned, seriously concerned that George Russell may find himself without a seat 
in Formula yeah. One for next season. Thankfully, that doesn't seem to be the case. But until that opportunity at Mercedes becomes available, the options for George Russell to really showcase his talent are very few and far between. Outside of, uh, you know, within Mercedes's remit, I suppose. Outside, there's always that option. And I think an opportunity may open up. I'd be very surprised if Red Bull didn't seriously look at trying to bring in someone like George Russell to partner Max. I thought he would have been an excellent acquisition for them. And even Ferrari, to some degree, would probably have to keep their eye out or keep their ear to the ground on what's happening with George's future. But of course, we'll leave it up to you guys what you think should happen and what you consider to be, well, oh, sorry, who you consider to be the stronger driver out of George and Lando. I'm still of the opinion. I agree with that poll. I think George has a higher ceiling of potential. And I think right now, if it was down to those two, I think George Russell would more likely take the W over Lando. But they're so close. It's such fine margins. And we're talking about two of the most exciting talents in Formula One in this generation. British talents as well. So plenty to look forward to in a post-Lewis Hamilton Formula 1 as far as British fans are concerned. But we're going to leave it there for part one. Quite a long first part, so I do apologise for that. But there's a lot to get into. In part two, we're going to be looking into F2, for those of you that follow it this season, and talk about three drivers in particular that have avenues into Formula 1 and what impact we expect them to make in contra- uh, similar to Lando and George Russell. So until then, we'll see you in part two of the DNF1 F1 podcast. The DNF1 F1 podcast is a brand new show that covers the latest gossip, news and events in the world of Formula One. In each episode, we discuss the hot topics, interview guests, as well as review each race from the Formula One World Championship. We upload new episodes weekly, and we upload our podcast episodes on all major podcasting platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. We also upload video versions of every podcast episode on the DNF1 F1 Podcast YouTube channel, as well as other great content that you can check out. So make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel and click the notifications bell, so you don't miss out on any new content that we produce. You can also follow and engage with us on social media. The DNF1F1 podcast is now active on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. Stay safe and we'll see you in the next episode of the DNF1F1 podcast. So hello and welcome back to part two of the DNF1 F1 podcast. So we went a bit uh, along on part one, I should say, a bit overboard on that one, covering George Russell and Lando Norris in great depth for the future of British Formula One. But in uh, part two, we're going to be trying to cut it down to size a little bit. So uh, Courtney, get ready with the old back to George if uh, I start to go off on a bit of a tangent. But we're going to be covering three drivers in particular that uh, currently star in F2, the feeder series to Formula One, and three drivers in particular that I think you agree are chomping at the bit to make their impacts in Formula One and obviously could potentially have a good future in there. Now, first things first, before we do get onto those, for those of you wondering, we haven't mentioned Alex Albon, who technically is a British driver. He represents Thailand, um, where his mother's from, et cetera, et cetera. So we're not going to be covering Alex because he doesn't represent uh, himself as a British driver, even though he does have that British heritage, he represents as a Thai driver. So we're going to go from that and talk about F2. So the first place I think, Courtney, that we should start with F2 is the leading British driver 
in the F2 series, and that is Callum Eilock, who currently is second in the championship, only uh, battling away with Mick Schumacher for that title as it comes to its conclusion. I mean, what do you make of Callum Eilock's rise, particularly in F2? Because he's a driver that's gone under the radar for uh, as far as British hopefuls were concerned for quite some time. I mean, in 2015, he made his first impact, I suppose, in terms of a Formula One um, viewpoint by joining the Red Bull Driver Academy in 2015. Uh, he got let go um, not too long after. He was picked up by Ferrari in 2017 to join their Driver Academy and has been there ever since um, after his F3 campaigns and now he's in F2 making headlines and for all argument purposes you know it looks the fastest driver in the series despite not leading the championship I mean what do you make of Callum Eilot from what you've seen so far? No he's uh, he's certainly made an impact this past season because yeah two or three seasons ago I thought he was going to start sort of like fading away almost you know away from the spotlight but yeah this season he's really made um made a big statement you know um there's a possibility for him perhaps to get a seat at Haas but it's looking unlikely with uh probably most likely be Mick Schumacher if anybody from F2 um getting a seat there um it just seems that Callum's another victim of a lack of opportunities with with Formula 1 seats available and it just goes back to the point that we've raised many times in this podcast how it would benefit drivers like like Callum to have more cars on the grid. So, you know, it's just so these guys get a chance to show us what they can do. But um, if he doesn't get it this season, I feel if he puts in another um, another season like he has this season, he'll definitely be catching the, uh, the eye of some of the teams in Formula 1 the following season. Yeah, absolutely right. And, um, you know, you talked about Callum almost getting that opportunity in practice at the um, at the Nürburgring. If it wasn't for the rain washing out FP1, he would have got that opportunity to practice for Haas in the same way that Mick Schumacher missed out for Alfa Romeo. And for a long time, I was under the impression that Alfa Romeo were going to take Mick Schumacher um, alongside Kimi Raikkonen. And then Callum Eilert would probably find himself uh, with a chance of joining the Haas team. It just seemed that was the natural fit with Haas replacing both of their drivers, but owing to recent rumours and speculation from what we are hearing, most likely Mick Schumacher and Nikita Mazepin taking those seats left too, although Ferrari themselves have said they will confirm that very, very soon, most likely uh, probably after this weekend's race in Bahrain in F2. There's only a couple of races left in the season, so if Callum Eilert puts himself in a position where he may still win this F2 championship for Mick Schumacher, Ferrari may have to think about which driver they're going to put in. They may have to wait until the season's finished to put the whoever wins out of the two of them in that car. Um, that being said, I agree. I, I think, you know, Callum has been in F2 in particular the last two seasons and his performances have been very, very good. I mean, I mentioned his pace. He is definitely the best qualifier in F2 this season and, and it's been very difficult conditions because normally in F2 the one thing you have to really demonstrate that you have a good ability to handle and that's tyre management and with the tyres usually being consistent from year after year in F2 it gives drivers with more experience and more knowledge of those tyres that ability to be able to maintain and improve whereas rookie drivers come in and they struggle early on and 
you know, Callum did struggle originally with his pace on the tyres, but his finishing was rather good. I mean, in 2019, his average finish was around eight for ninth, 8.6, I think it was when I worked it out. This season, he's improved that to 5.5. So he's averaging around fifth place uh, for every single race. Now, Callum himself has been very successful in 2020. He's got five pole positions this season, uh, three victories and six podiums. Very impressive numbers. Only Mick Schumacher could boast better, hence why them two are top of the championship. And as I said, Callum's pace has been very, very good. I've already said he looks the fastest driver in F2. Very consistent. Not... Uh, you know, not prone to mistakes, but definitely has made the odd one. Like he made one in the feature race at Silverstone where he completely spun the car whilst leading the race and in Club and Vale Corner. And, you know, it's moments like that in a very difficult F2 roster this season. I think it's fair to say it's been probably one of the more difficult ones uh, or at least more competitive ones where only someone as consistent as Mick Schumacher has proved to be ahead of him. But even then, I would still say on their day, Callum does look like the faster driver. And obviously, it's how they're going to handle themselves in F1. The problem for Callum is it doesn't look like there is a seat available for him for next season. Unless he does something major or something happens with Mick Schumacher in this finale of the championship, which prompts Ferrari to make a very difficult decision. But it does seem to me that looking at Callum making those incremental steps forward and the level of improvement year on year in his driving. I mean, he's only 22, so still incredibly quick. And the drivers that he's competed against in the past as well that we've already mentioned and a few others, he does look like a driver that is ready for Formula 1 at some point. But it, perhaps it may be more likely that he's going to be in F2 one more year and given the rate of his improvement, will probably go on to dominate next season's championship, um, you know, amongst some other, you know... Co- and contested drivers as we talked about already and perhaps other drivers like Dan Tickton, Jack Aitken, Robert Schwartzman as well looking for a way into Formula 1 those guys will be the most likely challenges to him so I don't really have any major reservations with Callum as you pointed out Courtney already that he's the sort of driver that just is held back because of the lack of opportunity but given his meteoric rise this season when it seemed all the world that everyone was expecting Mick Schumacher to make that step forward and go straight into Formula One to a point where Callum is literally on his level living with him and in some cases, you know, in better than him at times. It does seem that perhaps Callum will have to wait another year. I mean, what do you make of the old situation with Callum Eilert and Mick Schumacher, both Ferrari driver academy representatives? Do you feel that First of all, will Mick Schumacher and Callum Milot both be in Formula One, if not next year, but the year after? And where do you rate Callum alongside Mick? Because I think that's probably the best comparison we can make at the moment between those two. I think it's been so close between the pair of them. And I think actually it's quite a a wise move from Ferrari to use that F1 seat as a verbal carrot forever with the championship, and it certainly adds a bit of spice to the final races. Um, but my money, my money's on Mick. I think I think Mick will get the uh, the seat. He's ahead in the championship. You know, he's obviously, you know, being being Michael's son, there's there's going to be a lot of you know a lot of people wanting him to go into Formula One. So I think I think Mick has the edge, but they're certainly close in terms of ability. But I just feel that Mick will go to Formula One next season, and I think. If Callum Eilert has enough, enough good season in F2, then there's no reason why, you know, he can't catch the attention of some of the F1 teams going into 2022. 
Mm. And, and that's a good point. I, I don't think it's a bad thing for Callum to have to stay in F2 for another season. All right, you've been in it two seasons already and most drivers in F2 don't survive longer than two years. I often find that or feel that it's the most difficult step forward in motorsport in general, almost more difficult than making your name in Formula One um, is actually getting to Formula One from F2 because there's so many drivers in F2 that are really talented, but have really struggled to make that final step into F1. It's a very difficult because they're all competing for the same thing and you all have uh, an allotted time frame, some more than others, but in some drivers' cases, no more than one or two seasons at the very most with funding issues, etc. Something that someone like Mick Schumacher doesn't necessarily have by contrast to Callum Mylot. Um, not that that's a knock against Mick, that's just a situation that they both find themselves in for different reasons. But it's an opportunity that I feel that, thankfully for Callum, he has Ferrari's backing and they know that they've got a very talented young driver in their ranks. But it's a case of managing the situation. And, you know, as you mentioned, dangling that proverbial carrot of an F1 seat for whoever is the better of the two, even though I think you and I would both agree that Ferrari would want Mick Schumacher in that car next season. And as I said, the advantage of waiting another year is that with the regulation changes and the lack of downforce that these guys are going to be facing from the get-go, it might suit Callum better knowing that he will have more opportunity to get used to a car uh, or more opportunity to adapt to a car with less downforce having come from a feeder series that on average at most tracks is around 12 seconds slower in qualifying pace in a Formula One car with much less downforce, almost equivalent to the F1 2004 levels, if you can believe that. Um, I heard something interesting the other day when Mick Schumacher was um, test, uh, not testing, was driving Mugello um, in his dad's F2004. And someone said that it actually has the same level of downforce as an F2 car today, which is mind boggling to think about how brilliant those cars are. And yet someone went out and said that that's as fast as an F2 car. I almost didn't believe it, but the time suggested that that was the case. Not sure if Mick was giving it full beans. I'm pretty sure he was, but you know, that's food for thought really when you think about how far we've come in such a short time. But uh, yeah, so it's looking good for Callum, but I think you and I both agree probably 2022 will be his next step. And whilst I think he could do well in Formula One, um, we'll have to wait and see. You know, he's a guy that's improving year on year. So if he continues at the rate he's going, it could be a very exciting talent in the next couple of years, but we'll have to wait and see how that goes. Um, let's move to another driver now. As, as I mentioned already, Courtney, I made the point with Callum that you only ever have a finite time in F2 before you really need to make that step up in Formula One at a certain age range. These guys are out in their early 20s. Looking at someone who is a bit older, than most of the uh, F2 drivers and probably and the oldest driver on our list that we're covering. And that's Jack Aitken. Now, Jack Aitken, again, another talented driver, a driver that's, you know, honed his craft in the junior series with the likes of Lando Norris and George Russell and Callum Eilat and, you know, in particular, a driver that had a pretty good junior uh, junior record, winning Formula Renault 2.0 Euro Cup and the Out Series in 2015. You know, signed for the Renault Drivers Academy immediately after that. He's had experience in Formula One cars. He tested the Lotus E20 in 2017 as well. So you know, he, he's done a good job getting to the point where he was on the radar. But as we said before, Jack is one of those drivers that has had a hard time getting into Formula One and the Renault Driver Academy, we are well aware of the issues that 
that has presented for drivers trying to get into the sport. I mean, look at the situation now with Ocon and Fernando Alonso, and you've got drivers like Guan Yu Zhou, Christian Lungard, um, I was trying to think Oscar Piastri as well from Formula Three, making a step up. Drivers trying to get into that Renault car in the future, but there doesn't seem to be an immediate path through. And that's something that Jack experienced as well recently, hence why he moved to the Williams Driver Academy this season to be their test and reserve driver as well. And probably at the front, arguably at the front of the list, but he's also going to be competing with other drivers like Roy Nisani, who has been given practice experience. Um, and also Dan Tickton, who we'll talk about a little bit later on. Regarding Jack Courtney, how do you uh, value or how do you rate his rise up to F2 at this point? So, yeah, I look back at that 2018 um, season um, and at one point I thought he was in the mix. You know, I thought he'd be able to dice with the likes of Lando and George, but it just seems that he's a slowly but surely... He's kind of gone backwards and he hasn't had like the most ideal season this season. Um, and I think the problem for Jack is that Formula One is becoming a lot like football now where drivers are making it to that level at a much younger age. You know, they're, they're probably coming in on the average 19, maybe 20 years of age. And it's becoming a lot, a lot like football where if you're not really getting in there by the age of 23, 24, then it's going to be very difficult for you to get that chance. And, yeah, I've, I've, obviously it's not ideal for him, but it's just so competitive. There's just so many little seats in Formula 1. And for me personally, I, I think he's missed his chance. I don't want to completely knock the guy. I mean, you know, he, he, could, he could turn the form around. He could prove me wrong. But... Just looking from my perspective, I think he might have missed his chance and maybe he should look at other series to enter. Yeah, it's a difficult one because I like Jack. I, I think there's a lot of quality in his driving. But when we're talking about the top, top drivers coming into Formula One and we looked at Lando Norris and George Russell when they went in, Jack was in and around that period for them making his debut in 2018 in F2. He was George Russell's teammate for the ART team in uh GP3, which is Formula 3 now, come runner-up in that series. Oh, sorry, not runner-up. He was uh, quite a far behind him. Actually, no, he was runner-up. Idiot, Adam. Um, yeah, I'm getting my stats wrong. But he was runner-up in that series, but he was quite some margin behind George. And in F2, when they both joined, being in the same team, while George Russell was shining and rising like a phoenix, dominating that series, Jack could only muster 11th in that championship he wasn't at the same level as George in the same car in 2019 when he joined the Campos team leaving a race winning team like ART which obviously went on to win the championship again uh, that season with Nick DeVries and Jack didn't I mean Jack had a decent season with the Campos team had some good performances but the one issue I always felt with Jack was not being able to convert qualifying performances into race results I mean checking some statistics at you in 2019 Jack's qualifying average was about 8.6 so not bad probably not at the level of a championship winner in F2 but still pretty decent but then his finishing average was around 7.2 so Jack was roughly where you'd expect him to be in terms of outright pace he was making up at least the place and delivering on the performances you know he's making steps forward so his racecraft was good 
this season he's really really struggled um his qualifying average this season is about 9.6 so on outright pace is a little bit slower compared to where he was last year if you consider the uh the field as a constant uh between both years but his finishing average has gone down to 10.8 so he's averaging around 10th 11th place and I think the issue Jack has had this season, as I said before, is he's had a difficult time trying to convert qualifying performances into race results or getting race results. I mean, I remember the sprint race at the Russian Grand Prix recently where he had that accident with Luca Giotto. And even though he got the result, uh, he only got half the points for it because of the red flag situation stopping the race. There have been loads of incidents this season where Jack's had a harder time in the Campos team. Now, I'm not sure if it's down to the car. I mean... We all talk about even level performances between teams. So there are scenes that are slightly better than others of being able to extract that. And Campos, with, in fairness to them, it's their second season in F2. And I think this season they're really struggling. And I think Jack's doing his best. But as you mentioned, Courtney, it seems that opportunity to go into Formula One is becoming more and more distant for someone like Jack, where he does need to turn things around or seek some level of improvement next season in order to try and make that a reality. And as I mentioned already, with the likes of Roy Nassani, who I personally feel with the financial backing that he has as well and the practice sessions he's already done, seems the more likely candidate to get a Williams seat in the future at this point in time, not to mention the Dan Tickton situation as well, also being a part of the Williams Drive Academy. I mean... Would you say, assuming he gets a seat next year, this will be his fourth season in F2, do you think this could be make or break for Jack Aitken in terms of a potential career in Formula One? Or do you feel his opportunity has already gone? I think it has gone. Um, I think a lot of drivers that don't seem to make it in Formula Two seem to have relative success in Formula E, for example. So that could be an option for him going forward. Because, you know, you've already touched on it yourself. He's not he's not a bad driver. But I just don't think he's at the level to race in Formula One. So, But there's plenty of opportunities for him in, in other forms of racing. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I mean, I'm hopeful for Jack. I do like him. And I think he's a very good driver who has not been given the best of opportunities to really demonstrate his quality. I mean, he got that double podium at Silverstone this year, which was probably up there with some of his better performances of his career to date, but he just hasn't been able to be consistent in that and uh, deliver the goods, I suppose, on a regular basis, which is what you really need. It's what F1 teams look out for in all of these drivers that are trying to make the way into the sport. And that's consistent performances consistent results consistent podiums and winning races and that's where you see the likes of Eilat Schumacher in particular and Sonoda as well where they're shining and someone like Jack Aiken for example who I think can go toe-to-toe with them isn't able to deliver on that on a regular basis and that's a really hard thing and given this this will be his fourth season in F2 next year if he stays in it it's becoming the window I suppose is getting smaller and smaller and smaller in order to get into Formula One the queue is just getting is growing and growing for younger drivers to get into the sport. But um, moving on to the final driver that we're going to discuss. So um, about an hour or so of discussion, we finally got to the driver that's arguably the most controversial of all of the drivers on our list, probably more controversial than all of them put together. And certainly not what I would consider to be a bad boy in Formula One, but a driver that has certainly earned that tag um, over his junior career and that is Dan Tickton. Now 
as much as con- as controversial as Dan has been in his junior career, he is incredibly quick and has shown a lot of potential. For, for a few years now, we've been talking about Dan Tickton possibly moving into Formula One at a tender age, similar to what Max Verstappen did. I mean, this is how good Dan has been. But for loads of the unfavourable reasons that we're going to cover, has probably hindered his career more than his ability behind the wheel has helped it. So, you know, I, I mean, Dan Tickton is definitely an interesting character to talk about. Probably the first time we've talked about on this podcast, certainly probably not the last. But um, I mean, just looking at some of the things that have happened, let's talk about the positive things with Dan Tickton. First of all, incredibly quick driver, shown plenty of good pace and has won a lot of races in his junior career. Uh, the first that comes to mind are his back-to-back wins in Macau in 2017 and 2018 impressive stuff from him there double victories because obviously there's two races at the Macau GP and you know he's the ninth driver to win both Macau Grand Prix in the same year and also uh, the first driver to win back-to-back Macau GP since Felix Rosenquist five years before him so certainly in stellar company for those of you that know Felix Rosenquist from Formula E and now IndyCar racing as well uh, National Driver of the Year in the Autosport category for 2018, won the 2017 BRDC McLaren Award, which, for those of you that don't know, is gives you a test in a McLaren and also £100,000 uh, as a prize to help you fund your career in Formula, to get to Formula One. So certainly not a bad award. And as we mentioned, Lando and George were the previous winners of those awards before Dan ticked them. So certainly instead of company. And, and Courtney, Dan was in that, group mostly with Lando Norris in particular in uh, British Formula Ford um, so he's definitely in stellar company I mean what do you make of Dan Tickson as a driver let's let's get rid of the controversial stuff we won't talk about that yet but what do you make of Dan Tickson's abilities as a driver he's certainly shown plenty of potential you know you've mentioned all of the, uh, the stuff that he's done in junior categories um, but I think it's, it's quite interesting how you mentioned how he raced alongside the likes of Lando, you know, and at times, George, Albon, you know, he's he's almost seen like, shall we say, his class go on to better things, yet he's still languishing in Formula 2. And I, I just feel that, you know, like I mentioned with George Russell, feeling frustrated, feeling that with the lack of opportunity, I feel that that's, that's exactly what's happening with Dan. I feel that he's getting growing more and more and more frustrated. Like I've heard some of these team radios, and he just seems like a very frustrated guy. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that side of it is probably one of the reasons why he's not looked upon as favourably as the likes of George Russell, Lando Norris and Alex Albon. Uh, for those of you that notice if my voice is changing ever so often, um, I had a bit of a cold recently, so I do apologise if that's coming across. I also apologise if the audio or the video seems a bit strange in this episode, uh, the internet situation is not fantastic. So that might be affecting it. I do apologize for that, but thanks for bearing with us nonetheless. Um, Yeah. As you mentioned, the lack of opportunities for Dan has been an issue. He, uh, when trying to get a super license, he went to super performing in Japan for a few races when he was part of the Red Bull driver Academy was signed up in 2015. And, you know, this was a guy that was touted for many great things. And uh, sorry, back in 2017, I should say, when Red Bull picked him up, he was being touted to be a potential next Max Verstappen, if you like. And with Dan, he's had the performances in his past to really, you know, boast that level of uh, level of potential. 
I mean, in GP3 uh, in 20, I'm say, trying to remember my dates, actually, 2018, I believe it was, when he was in GP3, he was competing with Mick Schumacher. And very early on in that series, he'd won four races in the first half of the season, was absolutely dominating the series. Then in the second half, after the break, Mick Schumacher and the Prima team came back and won the next five races, including three of them at the Nürburgring. And Schumacher just completely went on to win that championship. And this is when we started to see the, uh, not necessarily the bad side, but this is where we started to see that bad boy emerge from Dan Tictum. I mean, I'll talk about a previous incident in Formula Ford in a bit, but Dan Tictum was made very controversial comments from a post on his Instagram profile, claiming that, um, you know, the FIA wanted the Prima team and Mick Schumacher to win and that they were cheating having a better car performance-wise. Bear in mind that all the cars meant to be the same, but had a performance advantage that was being overlooked because Mick Schumacher was Mick Schumacher. They wanted to get Mick Schumacher into Formula One and that Dan Tickton was not afforded the same opportunities simply because he wasn't a Schumacher. And uh, this did not come across very well on social media. Uh, a lot of fans were very angry about this to the point where you think that alone would be enough for people, to, Dan, to just let that go and just move on. But he wasn't. What happened was he ended up engaging with some of these fans, him and his girlfriend at the time, by, you know, calling them, I'm not going to repeat the names, but I'm going to, you know, saying certain things that aren't very pleasant. And, uh, you know, just come across as, uh, I suppose, a, a spoiled child or someone that uh, didn't like losing. I mean, I know, pe you know, a lot of people don't like to lose. I certainly don't like to lose, but come across as a sore loser. And whilst I understand Mick Schumacher's got all of the eyes of the motorsport world looking at him and interested in him because of who he is and obviously his dad's legacy and people want to see him do well. But it was very, very silly of a naive of Dan Tickton to kind of become public enemy number one, I suppose, in this case, by making those kind of outspoken comments. And then rather than retract them or apologize for what he did, he just went on a tirade on those people afterwards that sort of were rightfully annoyed over the comments that he made. I mean, what did you think of that incident, Courtney? Did you, was that exposing perhaps some of the mental, um, how can I put this in the right way without disrespecting him? Um, some of the weaknesses, I suppose, from or professional conduct weaknesses, I suppose, within Dan Tickton that has put Red Bull off him in particular and some others uh, in his junior career. Well, yeah, he seems to react to things in a very emotive way. You know, going back right to the beginning of the episode, we were talking about how, you know, drivers need to be careful what they say in the heat of the moment because it comes back to bite them. And um, it's very much the case with Dan Tickton. But, you know, the story that you said about like him and his girlfriend replied to people on Instagram, you don't, you sometimes hear that happening in football, but you never really hear that happening in motorsport. That's very rare. And I think that would definitely rub a lot of people up the wrong way because if you think if you're like a top Formula One team, so if he was to come back to Red Bull or race for Mercedes or Ferrari, particularly Ferrari, Van Tickton would stand a chance of Ferrari if he's to behave the way he has on Instagram. Mm. Yeah, no, you're right. And um, it, it's not something, I mean, we, we hold Formula One drivers perhaps to a different regard to say footballers, for example, who are a lot more active on social media amongst their fan base. But, um, and scrutinise probably more to the same detail, but 
it's one of those situations where you, if you're a Formula One team, and particularly Red Bull in this case, the last thing that you want is one of your young drivers who's trying to get into Formula One saying things like this and bringing all of this bad press to your team and your brand, which in turn is going to make them not look favorably on you when they're considering who to put in their seat in F1. I mean, Red Bull are very ruthless with their driver academy. A lot of drivers have come and gone, good drivers. I mean, some of the you know, springs to mind drivers like Jean-Éric Verne, very talented driver who was competing with Daniel Ricciardo for that Red Bull seat. Ultimately, Ricciardo won, but Dan, uh, Jean-Éric Verne ended up falling out of favour, ended up in Formula E and is doing very well. Sebastian Buemi, another driver who is uh, still, I believe, on the books at AlphaTauri as one of their reserve drivers. Um, you know, it's, so, so many good drivers being let go for just not being able to live up to that Red Bull's high expectations. The last thing they want is a young driver with all the potential in the world to make their decision easier for them by saying all these things and bringing all this bad press. I mean, we go on to the Super Formula. We mentioned that earlier on the Super Formula series in Japan. The reason Dan Tittem joined this was to try and get some extra super license points before the rules were relaxed on super license points. He needed another eight more points in order to get a super license to go to Formula One. If he'd have won the GP3 series like Mick Schumacher had done, he would have had enough points. But he went into that and, you know, he, he started off really well, got pole positions in the first two of the first three races, wasn't able to convert. He got second place in the second race, had a retirement and a sixth place. And he was on the podium for that race. Um, I think it was in Thailand. I can't remember whereabouts, the Beardsham Circus. Apologies if I've mispronounced it. But instead of enjoying and celebrating the festivities on the podium, as you normally would expect, he completely just walked off after being given his trophy, not participating in the champagne celebrations or anything. And uh, yeah, it, it was, you know, to the bemusement of the two drivers that were alongside him celebrating their success, you know, thought, yeah, all right, you're a bit frustrated with what's going on, but it's for the benefit of everything else, your brand, your image, and that, and the respect element, I suppose. You just, you know, conduct yourself in a way that surely you just celebrate it, and then when the doors are closed and that, you can vent your frustration. I know this is something we can say very easily and analyse based on the fact that we're doing a podcast so we don't understand what that's like to that level. I mean, as I said, I don't like losing, but if I was in that position as frustrated as I would have been and understand that there's a way to handle it. And that was certainly not it. And I'm just, I'm making this point because these are the sorts of things that a team like Red Bull who are very, very um, difficult, I suppose, to impress as they are, you know, in order to get into formula one, it doesn't make things easier for you when you actually conduct yourself in that way. And then obviously in races that followed in, super formula when he realized he couldn't win the series and get the points he needed he he dropped out he didn't go to the race in sepang and and that was it he just decided he didn't want to go so he pulled out of the series and then unfortunately for dan his uh path at red bull ended when they signed up uh oh, trying to remember the name i've got to check my notes here apologies for this guys i'm usually pretty good with my memory on this but i've completely forgotten who it was uh, that they signed up to replace. Yeah, so it was uh, Pato O'Ward, the uh, IndyCar sensation at the time. And uh, after that, he was let go. I mean, Christian Horner himself, Courtney, said that Dan, on on the Friday of the Russian Grand Prix, Dan himself was very emotional um, in what he says. And sometimes 
uh, you know, come expresses himself through his mouth without actually thinking about it. I suppose. I mean, it seems to be the case, definitely. It does, and with respect to Dan, I've probably said a lot of things on here that's probably not very positive, and it's certainly not a reflection of the character that he is now. I think that's important to make that point that in 2020 we've sort of not necessarily seen a rebirth, I suppose, of Dan Tickton, but we've seen a driver who's been very impressive this season in F2. It's not been the easiest of seasons for him, despite joining the Constructors' Champions, the Dams team from last season. But um, overall, his performances have been pretty, pretty good. I mean, just looking at some of the notes, his qualifying has been okay in about 9.5 on average. Regular appearance in the top 10. He's had three top four starts, including a front row start in Mugello, which was you know very good. He's had 13 top 10 finishes this season, and he's on average finishing around eighth. So, you know, in his first season, Dan has had a lot to overcome and a lot of a reputation to kind of bury behind him and try to reinvent himself. And I think to his degree, he's done a pretty good job so far this season. He's one of those drivers I expect, as I already mentioned, to be competing with the likes of Robert Schwartzman and maybe Callum Eilat next season for the F2 Championship. So there is hope for him yet. I mean, what do you think, Corny? Do you feel that this this is a, another last chance opportunity for some for another young British driver? And unlike Jack Aiken, do you feel that Dan perhaps has that potential and quality to really put that behind him and maybe make inroads to next season? Well, he has a little bit more time on his side compared to Jack, but yeah, he needs to really keep his head down and stay out of trouble. And, you know, because with F1 in particular, I know something that I've failed to mention before is with, with Formula One, they rely on sponsorship. So if you have a bad reputation or they, they feel like they can't trust what's going to come out of his mouth, then there's going to be a real, real issue with sponsorship. So he just needs to knuckle down. He knows he's got the ability. Knuckle down. Do a good, do the best job you can. If you have bad days, don't overreact and put uh, and, and perform silliness on social media or or behave badly in front of the media, because it's that kind of behaviour that's really holding back. So if he just focuses on the racing and the racing alone and does it correctly, then sure, I can't see why he wouldn't have another opportunity next season. Yeah, no, absolutely right, and and it's good to point that out. I mean, these guys aren't really coached into how to conduct themselves, or at least perhaps they are. Uh, in their driver academies when they have these meetings or go there I'm, I'm not sure but it's something that Dan will have to get used to if he does get into Formula One and the spotlight is going to be on him especially from what he's done in the past and what he said in the past there's always going to be that element to it with immediate interest so hopefully in his case he can just let his on-track activities do all the talking for him in the right way rather than having to defend himself every five minutes for saying something completely out of context or not an unpopular opinion i suppose if you like but um yeah i think we probably should call this episode a day i believe it's gone on quite a bit so yeah, i agree <laughs> i hope you guys have enjoyed it there was a lot of discussion on those guys but hopefully that kind of gives you a, a better understanding of the british f1 era post lewis hamilton and in a nutshell it's a very bright one for a lot of reasons up and down f1 and even f2 as well it certainly does not stop with Lando and George. And there are plenty of other drivers in F3 that look good, like Max Futro as well, another good young British driver in Formula 3, uh, um, amongst others as well. And of course, the W Series, joining the F1 calendar as well. Uh, a lot of good drivers from there. Jamie Chadwick, the W Series defending champion, Alice Powell as well. Abby Eaton, 
uh, those of you who remember Abby Eaton will probably recognize her from the Grand Tour as the tame racing driver. And so definitely a popular character there and looking forward to seeing the ladies in the W Series uh, on the F1 Canada for next season, see how they get on. But um, as I already mentioned, it's probably a good time to end this episode. So Courtney, thank you so much for joining me once again. Apologies to those of you who had some any issues with the sound or the internet stuff. I do apologize. Hopefully that will improve soon. And of course, with my voice in particular as well, not being on par to its normal standards. But um, all right, so beat myself up. <laughs> and uh, yeah, probably you're right on that one. Back to George. Um, gotta make that, <laughs> gotta, got to make that thing. Even in the comment section, back to George. Oh, I promise. Fine. Back to George. We'll do it. We'll do it. <laughs> but um, as I said before, guys, thank you so, so much for those of you that are tuned into recent episodes and subscribed to the channel. We're really, really appreciative of your support. And we hope that continues I'll to grow. That. Exactly. And we hope that continues to grow with more great content coming over the winter break, the plans that we've got in store. But in the meantime, don't forget to follow us on social media if you haven't already. That's Twitter and Instagram, DNF1 underscore podcast. And on Facebook and YouTube, DNF1 F1 podcast as well. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcasting platform, thank you so much for tuning in and following us as well. So all that's left to say, guys, is thanks for tuning in. Stay safe. And we will see you in the next episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. Network.